Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Elon Sunset as part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. As always, joined by my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. Steve, we talked at the end of last week's episode that this tournament, right out of the shoot, you better be on your A-game or you could be going home early because the early round matchups were heavyweight against heavyweight. And boy, did that play out this week. Absolutely. And it was hard for a lot of people to get acclimated to the hard courts, including the world number one, because obviously Alcaraz never had an easy time of it from the time that he opened up against Ben Shelton and got taken to a second set tiebreak. So, yes, no question about it. This was a this was a <laughs> this was a rude awakening for some players and, and a wonderful opportunity for others. And, uh, you know, just as evidence is saying, you know, you go late one week, it's so hard to bounce back and do well the following week. You know, Maria Sakari played in the finals, right, in Washington, D.C. against Coco Goff. She lost early. We're going to talk about that match a little bit, her, her match with Danielle Collins. You got Dan Evans and Stefano Tsitsipas winning titles the previous week. They all lost their um, first match in Toronto. So uh, I think, again, and the, the condensed draws, when you're in a 128, if you're highly ranked, you may get that first or second round match, maybe a little bit easier than others. But when you're in these condensed draws, Steve, 64 players, there's even some buys right for the top guys there. You have got to be prepared right from the get go. And if you're not, you can get bounced super early as evidenced uh, by what happened this week. True. And but but the, the flip side of the coin is you do have situations like Alex D. Menor, who got to the finals against Sitsipas the week four, back in the finals this week, Jessica Pagula, Madam Consistency, yes. who, uh, who made it to the semis and lost a good match to Sakari last week, wins the title this week. But you're right. It's a different psychological uh, thing altogether for those who come off the actual title runs. And poor Sitsipas ran up against a kind of a revitalized Gail Monfils. Yes. And that spoiled his opportunity because I think he was ready. And physically, I think he was okay. I think it was just a little bit of a, an emotional letdown in his case. Gael played great. I mean, look at the level of his play. He was spectacular. Yeah, he was. He was. I mean, he, he's been gone for so long with the injuries. He came back so straight. He looked so good physically. He lived nothing. So many times we've seen him battle through matches where he looks wasted. He looks like he's doing it on willpower and his body is about to completely break down. Didn't look that way at all this week. Now that I was encouraged by that. Makes me think that Monfils could could have a pretty good U.S. Open. Yeah, let's see. Okay, so I, I want to start um, specifically talking about a player. Again, she was a previous guest on uh, on our podcast. We talked about her briefly last week, and that's Jen Brady. Because, I mean, she played Delana Ostapenko in her first match. Again, for the people who don't remember, Jen's last match before like almost a two-year absence was against Ostapenko in Cincinnati, which is going on right now. Um, Jen beats Ostapenko 7-6-0-6-7-6. Then her next match is against the 2022 Wimbledon champ, uh, Rabakina. That level was crazy. It went over two days. She loses 6-7-7-6-6-3. One break for Rabakina in the third. Jen's yeah. level is... a crazy high oh no she played great tennis she you could tell she was pleased when she walked up to the net she had that look that almost said look i i, I could have won this match i i've got i'm not going to complain I, I lost to a great player but i put myself in a position to win and it's it's remarkable that she could do that right out of the gates like this and uh, 
she had such great ball control off her forehand side. You commented to me during the week about how you couldn't believe how hard she hits that, especially oh. off her forehand. But I, what impressed me was, yes, the speed, the pace, but there's so much spin on that forehand that she's she's not going to overhit it very often. She looked terrific. Are you surprised at the level that she's playing at right now? This is what, oh, like her second, second WTA tour. I think she played a challenger up in yeah. Canada as her first like warm-up event. But are you surprised at her level oh, right now? No, tremendously surprised. I, I wouldn't have thought the Ostapenko win was possible. And I wouldn't, I, I thought Rabakina would beat her three and four or something like that. So I, I think she's got to be delighted that she can be at that level this quickly. And then hopefully she can have a decent open, but more so set the stage for a really good 2024 season. Well said. And and how about qualifier Danielle Collins? Had, she had to beat Jeannie Bouchard in the final round of qualifying. She beat, uh, she smoked uh, Alina Svitolina, 6-2-6-2, I think, 6-1. I don't know. It was 6-2-6-2, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Then she beats uh, Maria Sakari, 6-4-6-2. Danielle, to me, she always plays with a real edge on the court. I don't think that is her real personality um i don't think that's her personality off the court by all accounts we've seen her off the court very friendly uh, players seem to like her but boy when she's on court um it's like a different personality out there some players that they they need to get into almost what amounts to a dark mood it's a competitive it's a competitive thing it's the only way they feel they can bring the best out of themselves and obviously she feels that way but in addition to what you mentioned, then there was she played very well against Riantek too, and pushed her down to the wire in three sets. So great week for her, a reemergence in some ways. You know, a, a revitalized Collins. Let's see what she can do now going forward. But that's the best we've seen from her in a long time. Uh, and and uh, you know, from my point of view, when she goes on court, I don't think she views herself as an underdog to many players no. at all. She just has that well, attitude that she's going to fight and claw. Yeah, fighting claw, but she's so aggressive. She takes matters into her own hands. And I think that's why she feels so confident is that she can unnerve and disrupt other players, even the top ones, and, and, and feel like make them feel like she's breathing down their neck the whole time. And that's that's not fun. It's not an enjoyable experience for them. So yeah, I I, I was I was very impressed with her this week. You mentioned Carlos Alcaraz at the at uh, at the outset. He never seemed to be very comfortable this week. It was his first hardcore tournament, first tournament since Wimbledon. Um, even when he beat Ben Shelton in the first round, it was kind of it was kind of choppy. Um, the Hercox match on Thursday, he wins seven six in the third after being up five two two breaks with a match point. You usually uh, close that out, especially someone of, of Carlos's ability. But again, yeah. The, the mental strength to lose those two breaks and still win it says a lot about Carlos. Well, yeah, that's remarkable about him because he actually had like two match points, I think, in the five-two game on yep. his serve. But that's that's is very much un, unlike him. And the next thing you know, from five-two and two match points, he's serving at five-six, and then he played a great backhand down the line pass on the first point, held on easily, and then ran away with the tie break. So yeah, he's he's very resilient as a competitor, and he doesn't seem to let. Any bad patches get in the way. He bounces back remarkably well, as we saw in the Wimbledon final as well. So I, uh, the fact that he lost to Tommy Paul, yes, Tommy beat him in Canada last year in this same tournament. Obviously, they move, the men and women swap around from Montreal to Toronto, vice versa. But 
same tournament, two years in a row, Tommy Paul beats Carlos in three sets, but it was a, it was an excellent performance from Tommy Paul to beat him. And, and Carlos, uh, you had gotten in touch with me in the middle of the match because Carlos made a great tweener uh, in the middle of the second set that, uh, that ended up helping him hold. And then he broke in the next game at three all and Tommy Paul, Tommy Paul commented on how Carlos might've he had the feeling at the time that Carlos might've been permanently altering that match. But to Tommy Paul's credit, David, he then nearly broke back in the next game. There was a long seven deuce game. He didn't break, but he, he showed that he was right in there. And even though Carlos won the second set, Tommy saves a break point at the start of the third set and gets one break himself and makes it count and did a terrific job to close out that contest in three sets. The best Tommy Paul I've seen since, I believe, since he got to the semis of the Australian Open, even though he was in the finals in the spring on, on the hard courts as well. Uh, I, I, I really like the way he played. Not quite as good against Sinner, but ter ter terrific performance against Alcaraz. And it was interesting, that match against Alcaraz, because Tommy was up 6-3-3-2. And when Carlos hit the tweener, it was 40-love on Carlos's serve. But when you hit a shot like that, then he breaks Tommy the next game at love. And I'm like, uh-oh, this match can turn on a dime just with yeah. that unbelievable passing like shot. That he hit. It can, but I think Tommy was wise enough to realize, look, Carlos is, a, is not only a great player, but he's a flashy shot maker, and he loves – one of the things that Carl, separates Carlos from some other top players, maybe Roger had a bit of this in him himself because he was such a brilliant shot maker, is that desire to please the crowds. To Really, it, it makes them feel really good, particularly Carlos, to do something that's, that makes the crowd gasp. So, and he tends to do, you tend to see one, something like that maybe once a match from him. It just happens a lot. And I think Tommy was smart enough to say, okay, just stay calm. It, he was already up 40 love. He holds his serve. Forget about it. Granted, it may have bothered Tommy briefly when he lost his serve in the in the next game, but that it, it didn't last. And I thought that was one of the key primary reasons why he ended up winning the match is he just moved on and, and he was terrific off the forehand. And by the way, that was a bad week off for Carl by Carlos's standards. He had a bad week off the forehand. He never found his range in any of those matches off uh, on the forehand side. It was very uh, streaky. I think that'll probably change in Cincinnati, but he, he didn't really have his timing off the forehand side the way we've come to know with him. I'm and, and if I'm in Carlos's camp right now, I'm not overly concerned. This is his first tournament since Wimbledon. He plays. He never really got comfortable. That said, he did get three matches in. Yeah. Um, and if he if he makes a good run at, at Cincy, even if he doesn't win it, if he goes far and gets some good wins and gets the maybe the semis or whatever, his um. His prep for for the, for New York will be fine. His prep for I'll New York. I agree with that. I agree with that. I, uh, I I'm just saying, yeah, we, he had looked so good. Obviously, winning Queens, winning Wimbledon. You know, he's going for his seventh title of the year, going for his third title in a row. We tend to to believe these top players are invincible at certain times, and they are for a while. Medvedev had a stretch like that early in the year. We know what Novak can do when he's on a streak, and Carlos was on one of those. So, in a way, it actually could do him some good because. You got to come down to earth every once in a while and, and get back to work. And he will. And I agree with you. It, it, I'm sure the people around him, like Juan Carlos Ferrero, Ferrero, his coach, I'm sure they're saying, look, we're going to do everything we can to win Cincinnati. But just remember last year, you didn't win Canada or Cincinnati and you won the U.S. Open. It could be the same this year. So don't put undue pressure on yourself to win Cincinnati. Inevitably, he'll, he'll get some wins in Cincinnati. Whether he takes the title, that's another story.
Well said. Um, you know, I, we, we talked about players who did very well the previous week and losing early. Um, another player that we haven't mentioned yet who won uh, in Washington, D.C. was Coco Goff. And she, I mean, she had a great she had a great week. She lost a tough match on Friday to Jesse Pagula. But on Thursday, she beat the defending Wimbledon champ, Marketa Vandrasova, 6-3-6-0. She was destroying people up until the point she played Pagula. Again, not a bad week at all. She lost a tough three-setter to, to her friend, Jessica Pagula. She has to have a ton of confidence right now. And I think we were even talking if she won this or even got to the finals, she would have played a lot of matches. What do you do then in Cincy? Now I think she'll play Cincy for sure, but she's got to be brimming with a ton of confidence right now. Well, yes, I, I, I largely, I agree. I, I obviously it's not, not fun to lose. And she had beaten Pagula the last time they played on the grass in Eastbourne pretty routinely, but, and it's a match that she almost pulled out David because Pagula won the first at six two. Coco scrapes out the second, seven five and then they go to the third and and coco actually was ahead five four on serve and then pagula in the clutch down the stretch was remarkable because she she held on at third she only lost four more points the rest of the way three games in a row 12 out of 16 points takes the match right out of coco's hands played a really good strategic match the other reason i don't think it'll sting too much is these two are really good buddies and I guess I think either one of them would say, if I'm going to lose to anybody, I hope it's her. I honestly believe that the greeting that Coco gave Pagula at the net. And again, had she lost three and three or three and four and not played well, but she, she worked her way into the match and gave a good account of herself. And in the end, Pagula was just too good in the clutch down the stretch and deserved the victory. But I agree. Won't take a lot of wind out of Coco's sails. And now she will go to Cincinnati trying to see if she could win another title or at least go deep into that draw. And that can carry her. If she, she does either one of those, she's going to come into the open in, in great shape. Yeah, so I was going to say, if she has a good run in Cincy, she will have three weeks in a row where she's done really, really well playing yeah. at a very high level. It would be great to see her going into New York with that confidence. So we'll see. I, I do want to stick on um, Jesse Pagula for a little bit. Let's talk about the two... Two semi-matches, one of the women's and one of the men's. And the men's will be Tommy Paul and Yannick Sinner. But let's start with Jesse Pagula versus Iga Sviatek. I mean, she beats Iga 6-4 in the third. She should have won it in straight sets. She was up 5-4 in the second. She's up 4-3 in the breaker. You got Cotton Eye Joe being played from a DJ in the middle of the breaker. Um, I don't think there's many other players other than Jesse Pagula. And I think it's because she is so even tempered. We've talked about this several times on the pod. She doesn't get too high and she doesn't get too low, but she should have won that match in straight sets. And she didn't. And for her to still get her emotions in check and to beat the number one player in the world in three sets after squandering chances to win that match in straight sets speaks tremendously to, to, uh, to what Jesse did that match. Listen, it reminiscent in some ways. She could almost have beaten Coco in straight too, but that but the even dis even disposition serves her so well, as you oh, said. Well. And I think uh, what was great about the Sriantec match is that not only did Jess uh, have the disappointment of not winning the tiebreak, but she goes down four two in the third, and then from two four down in the third, she won four games in a row, sixteen out of nineteen points. She was magnificent, and to the point where. Swiatek said afterwards, I'm going to need to look at the tape. She felt like she couldn't really explain what went on in those last four games. She wasn't sure what hit her. I think that's a great compliment to Pagula, to Pagula that 
someone as experienced and savvy as Swiatek would not be able to cite exactly what it was, but she knew she'd been outplayed. So I thought that those two matches were just those wins back to back over Coco and Ego were were so uplifting for Jess. And then, of course, she just 49 minute blitz in the final uh, remarkable performance, weary opponent, but nonetheless, great performance from Jess. It's almost as if, you know, you took someone and put the TV on and they didn't have the scoreline on the bottom of the screen. You wouldn't know if she was down 6-2-4-1 or if she was up 6-2-4-1. She's steady as she goes. She's so solid, so consistent. You have to beat her. She's not going to beat herself. And just how how intense this game is, how high of level that she's at right now to to keep your emotions in check like she does is an incredible skill. Well, it is. And I think, but I also think this was a very, very important week for her. It's only the third WTA singles title of her career. For somebody that spent most of the last year at number three in the world, that's very surprising. And she she's gotten to that upper echelon because of her consistency that we t- talked about earlier. But this was a really important win. She didn't want to waste those two wins in the quarters and semis and lose in the finals. It really kind of reminds her that she's capable of winning these titles and not to be satisfied with, with consistent quarterfinal, semifinal, final round runs. Go for the gusto. Go for it all. And she capped it off beautifully. And, and I have to say, David, it wouldn't totally shock me, depending on how the draw plays out in New York, if we saw Coco Goff against Pagula in the finals, I wouldn't be a bit shocked. That would be amazing. I think a lot has to fall, right? Because there are a ton of so many good players at, oh, at, no, at the top of the tour, but that would be something in New York. But I'm saying they're both, no matter what happens in Cincinnati, they're both going to come to New York feeling pretty good about the way they're playing. I mean, they, they're going to feel like they're well-prepared. Pagula's got this, got this title. Coco won the week before in Washington. We'll see what happens in Cincinnati. But I just mean they're going to have a lot of crowd support in New York, two Americans, right up there in the, the top tier of the sport, number three and number seven in the world. So I just feel like, wow, that is a possibility. Let's put it that way. It's a real possibility. You know, and and um, one more thing on Coco, you know, and Brad Gilbert has said this, and we don't know. He could be just telling the press one thing and doing another. But one thing everyone was talking about Coco's forehand, obviously. And Brad said, we have not talked about the forehand. We have not tinkered with the forehand. Now is not the time to do that in the middle of all these tournaments, which – probably smart. If you do something like that, you want to try to do it, you know, maybe after the final slam or during the short off season that we have. Um, But he's talking about strategy and footwork and everything else, but the forehand Um, it seems to have gone away. I know from just watching Coco play as an observer, I think I said this on last week's episode, it's not as stressful for me seeing how that forehand is going to hold up every point, especially when there's pace forced at it. I, I want to see it even more so in Cincy and U.S. Open when the top players, like we said last week, Ega just keeps pounding that forehand to see how it holds up. But it, it's not even like a focus anymore right now when you're watching Coco play. It's holding up pretty well. No, holding up pretty well. Although I have to say, I think there were times that Pagula peppered away to that side, and but she had to work hard to coax the errors. They, they, it wasn't like Coco was just making – really foolish errors and early in a point and, and looking confused and befuddled by why she was missing. Jess had to work hard to win that. She had to probe a lot off both sides, but nothing like what we've been seeing pre-Washington or earlier in the year. So yeah, it's very encouraging 
And I'm sure that whatever Brad said, I have a hard time believing he hasn't given her a few little tips, at least strategic on how to handle the forehand and what to do in certain situations. And not, not that technical on the stroke, but how to utilize it and how to give it more air at certain times. I'm sure he's done some of that. Nice. So I, I do want to talk about um, the men's semi. Uh, the, the specific semi I want to talk about is Tommy Paul versus Yannick Sinner. And if you look at the scoreline, if you didn't watch the match, you know, Sinner wins 6-4, 6-4. It seems pretty straightforward. To me, I don't think that match was nearly as straightforward as what that score was. The level of hitting, Steve, the power. And we we all talk about Sinner's power. And boy, does he have immense power. But Tommy was going toe-to-toe with him for a lot of that match, Steve. He was. I do think, I mean, Sinner was magnificent. No question about it. The, the, the tournament was a, was an overriding six over just a, a rousing success for him. I, I and you're right. Tommy went toe to toe with him. I did feel that Tommy's forehand was even better against Carlos. Uh, now, it's hard to know in terms of the matchup, whether he was dealing with the two opponents, whether he was a little more troubled by Sinner's ball, by the that type of pace versus Carlos's. We won't know. But right. they had some just astonishing rallies can we and, talk about the 46 ball rally now i mean i steve i it, it almost was like they kept trying to one up each other and then tommy would try to change the pace with the slice like there was a little bit of everything and i was telling someone who hadn't seen it live and they're like well did anyone try to go up to net i'm like there wasn't an opportunity for anybody to go up to net and to me I, i'm again there's there's bigger more important pressure points and slams or a final of a tournament. I'm trying to think, and I've seen a bazillion ten individual tennis points in my life. And whatever that number is, you've seen it times 100. <laughs> and I know we texted Steve, the 95 us open final with Pete and Andre, they had that 20 plus ball rally. It was a set point, magnificent rally. Both guys blasting the ball. Pete winds up winning that point in the set. That was 20 plus balls. This was 46 balls, Steve. I mean, toe to toe, full throttle. I can't, and I know there's recency bias. I I get it, but it's still 24 hours now since that rally happened. I'm trying to think if you isolate that point, toe to toe, full throttle, I can't think of one that is comparable. No, I, I'll tell you what, there, there, were, there were a couple of Djokovic matches I can think of with Rafa, with Zarev at the U.S., some, some, some rallies that actually went into the 50s, and, and, and they, were, they were not babying the ball either. On the, but this one just stood out because they, they each, I would say, hit four or five shots within the 46 strokes that should have been winners or should have been point concluders without any question that the other guy would get back within a foot of the baseline. That's It just was, it it, 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 it defied belief at times, the, the way they could recover and regain the ascendancy in the rally and keep it going until Sinner finally finished it off, you know, by virtue of a great forehand. But I, I Steve, just, it was a big point. It was a break point for Tommy. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. No, and, it, and, 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 you know, he still, it, Tommy was broke back both in each set, though, amazingly. Because he still, I mean, he was down 4-2 in the first and he got it back to 4 all, and Sinner closed him out. And then he, despite that point and going down a break, he still broke Sinner when Sinner served for the match, but it, went, it wasn't enough to stop Sinner from breaking right back. For all credits, it shows you what a great returner Sinner is, shows you what a 
what a great temperament he's got too, not to allow himself to be uh, dislodged or, or uh, just thrown off guard. I mean, it could have really thrown him for a loop. And I, I'm sure Cahill was worried in the stands, his coach. So you don't want to not close it out at times like that. But each time he was able to break Tommy and, 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 and in the end, win that match in straight sets. A very good victory. But Paul had a little bit of a difficulty with his back at one point. The trainer was out, but look, Sinner was just too good. And he deserved it. And then he, he dismantled Alex Di Minore in the final as well. And again, that was another case where Di Minore broke back in the first set. from four. He got back from 4-2 to 4-all. But by, by, Sinner was just, eight of the last nine games, he was just way too good. And he gets his first Masters 1000 title at long last. And he's coming off his first major semifinal at Wimbledon. Now he'll come into the U.S. Open I think regardless of what happens in Cincinnati, by the way, he'll, he'll be looked at as one of the, you know, after Carlos, after Novak and Carlos, Sinner's going to be given as good a chance to win this tournament as anyone. And you mentioned, you know, uh, the tennis this week was extraordinary and the t- and the finals today was, you know, anticlimactic. Uh, you have to feel yeah. for Samsonova. She had to play three sets earlier. It's tough to play two in one day, especially when the second match is Jessica Pagula. Jessica won 6 1 6 0 in 49 minutes. Um, and as you said, Sinner just dominated Demonar. Um, I don't think it I don't think it lessened what this tournament was on both sides in Toronto and and no, uh, no. Montreal. And, I mean, it was uh, astounding tennis. And also the two champions, they put on clinical clinically efficient displays. Yes. Both, both both Jessica and Sinner uh, were just first rate. So they, they capped off great weeks. They deserved their titles. And the fans had had enough. They'd been treated to so many hard-fought, suspenseful clashes during the week. They couldn't complain about one-sided finals. And I think that Pagula, just to her great credit, she just didn't want to let Samsonova even have a, a, a breath of daylight. She didn't want to just she, – she just stepped on the gas. She just was – determined that she was going to win this match comfortably. And because she knows, you know, you can be up a set in three love and the next thing you know, you're deadlocked at one set all. You've got to really bear down hard. And she wanted this title and she really was, I mean, I know she made two, three unforced errors in the first set. I think another two or three in the second. It was, it was just a, a first rate disciplined display. And yet Pagula was very aggressive too. Very aggressive, served five or six aces Great performance from her and, and ditto for Sinner. Yes, I, I would agree. And I think in, in Pagula's situation, knowing your opponent has played three sets before, you want to keep your foot on the gas and you don't want to give that person any type of hope because that person can get a second win. You don't know. And then all of a sudden you're in a battle and Jesse just did not let that happen. And, and she's a very dangerous player, Samsonova, because she's one of the biggest hitters in women's tennis. So you don't want to suddenly get allow her to get in the groove and start hitting winners. And Jess was hitting the ball so deep and crisply the whole match and, and, and missing so little that she, she never did allow her to, to, to have any kind of hope. And uh, that's, that's, that, that impressed me, too, because how many times do we see, not through her own fault, by the way, just the level of competition, that Pagula is engaged in one harrowing three-set match after another. It's the nature of things. There's just a lot of really tough capable players out there so it was nice for her to be in a final and wanting her first title of the season getting it and doing it in under 50 minutes 
Well said. So here's a, here's a question for you. We mentioned how, you know, Tommy Paul had a, had a really, really good week. I want to ask you this go and I know we still have Cincy and then there's another week. And a lot of the top players take the following week off before the open. Um, but if I give you Francis Tifo, Taylor Fritz and Tommy Paul right now, right now, what you've seen up to this point in the year, who are you most confident with? And I know it a lot depends on opponent and draw, but if you had to say, David, I'm picking this person out of the three to go the furthest in New York. Do you have someone of that three? Or are they still kind of so yeah. close? You're not comfortable picking one of them. No, I'll do it just because you asked the question. I'm going to answer it. But I say it with very little confidence right now on form because of what I saw from Tommy Paul uh, this past week in Canada. I, I, I got to go with him. Now, on the other hand, we know Fritz won Atlanta. He was playing well for a couple of weeks. They lost in the semis of D.C. And then then he, he got beaten by D. Menorah this, this week. And, and that was a bit surprising. Uh, I put him second and Tiafo third. But I think there's reasons that all three could could have the glory in New York. Tiafo because he was in the semis last year. And, he's, and he loves the big New York crowds. He's had two really good U.S. Opens in a row. And he went five with Carlos before losing in the semis. Fritz, because he's so long overdue to have a big major, not just that quarterfinal at Wimbledon that we saw from a year ago when he could have beaten Rafa and been in the semis, but at least a semi. He he, he owes it to himself. And, and then Tommy Paul, because you just feel like when he plays the brand of tennis he did this week, you know, I feel like it's one of the better forehands in the sport and that he's a sturdy competitor and that he's he's capable of jumping up into that top 10 level occupied right now by Fritz and Tiafo. So and Tommy, uh, um, his athleticism and speed, right? Oh, Such a good athlete. Such a yeah, good no, athlete. The movement is incredible. And and it's smooth. It's smooth. You don't feel like he's, you know, I was surprised he had a little slight injury problem there with his back because I feel like he's on balance all the time. You don't feel like he's jarring his body too much. So I, I'm kind of optimistic about all three, but I, 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 I think that in, in the case of Tiafo and Fritz, they could use a little bit of a lift this coming week. And Cincinnati might be even more important to them than it is to Tommy Paul to get back to the trio. I, I would agree. And to, to as far as uh, Tommy Paul's back, I mean, if if I took four hands from Carlos and then the very next night I had four hands from Sinner, my back would be crushing too. So uh, uh, maybe. Maybe your arms and your, and your knees and your and, and your wrists and everything else too. A hundred percent. Now, with, and with Taylor Fritz, and I, I guess I, I guess I followed it more a little bit more closely because his coach Michael Russell and we know Paul Anacone's on the team too. But Michael Russell and his wife Lily, I follow them on Instagram, and they, I mean, they do a great job of, you know, kind of exploring the sites of where they go week to week. And I mean, Steve. Taylor plays so much tennis, so many tournaments. I think going forward next year in 2024, they have to condense his schedule a little bit. And I don't know. I'm sure there's been conversations. I'm not blaming any fault or, or someone saying, hey, we got to condense it. And, and Taylor saying, no, we, we don't. I don't know the inner workings of it, but they play a lot of tournaments, Steve. And I think the level that Taylor's at right now, they have to start condensing his schedule a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly believe that they're that they that they have, are trying to address it. I, I'm sure that Anacon would agree with you, and I think Russell would too. But he's a stubborn character. He he loves to play a lot. He believes that he can play a lot and benefit, and he's not going to get stale. He's not going to get overworked. 
he's the big thing is he's got to put himself in a position where he peaks at the majors. Uh, it's nice to win Atlanta, but let's see some of that in New York. And and I think that's what worries them too, is if you play too much, you know, now it so happened that Dean Menor beats him here. And so he didn't go into the weekend in Canada that, you know, that after being winning and then getting to a semi in DC, if he'd been in the finals, maybe he'd be getting overplayed. But now we'll see what he does in Cincinnati and, and how it all works out in New York. But long term, I suspect they'll have that discussion. It's, a, it's, it's something they need to talk about a lot in the fall as they're making his 2024 schedule to right. try maybe consider a little cutting back a little and just trying to make the most of fewer appearances. I agree. Um, we'll see how that develops going forward. So now we have the last Masters 1000 before the last slam of the year. Cincy, the qualies were yesterday and today. We're recording this Sunday night. They also had some first round matches that were played today. Good friends Ben Shelton and Chris Eubanks played again. They played each other in a ton of challengers in the fall. Now they're playing each other in the main draw of a Masters 1000. Incredible. They just recently played in Mallorca before Wimbledon. Um, today went three sets. Ben got the better of Chris in three sets. Ben now plays Stefano Tsitsipas in the next match. So um would be interesting. I mean, some of these matches, Steve, again, Sasha Zvera plays Grieger Dimitrov. Matteo Berrettini plays Felix Agir Aliassime. We need to see how FAA's um, coming into shape because he's been struggling with injuries. On the women's side, you get Svitolini, Svitolina versus Wozniacki. Wozniacki, yeah. we didn't we didn't talk about her. Um, she won her first match very easily. Then she played a, a good match in her second round. Who'd she lose to? Von Drusova. Von Drusova. Von Drusova yeah. she lost. yeah. Six two seven five. A lot of unforced errors yeah. at times. Um, I mean, they were like in chunks, right? But six two seven five against a no, Wimbledon no, champ. No. Your second match up. Early in the second set, I thought it was going to be a two and two. She yep. did very well to get back into that set. Almost got got herself in a position to win it. Overall, I thought her, I, I have to say I, I was surprised how high her level was. It'd be fascinating to watch her play Swidalina, who's maybe uh, gone off her game slightly the past couple of weeks. She's, you know, she, she, she's had a couple of tough losses in a row and just beat her in Washington and then lost this week. I mean, uh, you know, got caught off guard this past week, but I think this will be an, a fascinating test for Wozniacki uh, to play her now, having come off playing the Wimbledon champion the week before. Let's see what, what she can make of that. I mean, they're, they're going to have some pretty interesting strategic rallies. They're going to work each other hard. You're going to see a lot of 20-stroke rallies in that match. And I, I hope that Carolyn can can follow through on the on the encouraging start she made this past week. Yeah, I, I agree. I hope I hope so. Now there's something to look for, you know, look at when we're when we're watching the when we're watching the tournament this week in Cincinnati is the players who have had a really good productive summer, if they fall a little short in Cincy. It may not bother them as much, but look at the players who may not have had a, as great a productive summer that they would like. And if they make a deep run in Cincinnati, that's something to take a look at because this is really the last big event. This is the last big event before yeah. the final slam of the year. Really hone in on those players. Again, you can look at it in two ways. The ones who've had great weeks coming in, maybe they get upset early. I don't think they'd be overly concerned. But those that haven't been as productive as they want, if they can make a deep run, 
and then their confidence will be sky high going into New York. It's it's going to be fascinating to watch. No, it is. It'll be very interesting, and uh, it, it's the it's the end of the preparation for most of these people, and it's largely a bonus. You're right. It, it I I think it's more on that side of the scale. If you can get if you can do something great in Cincinnati, terrific. But it's also not the end of the world uh, in terms of New York and the Open if if you don't fare well in Cincinnati. So I, I think. Most players try to look at it that way. There's no sense in putting excess pressure on yourself uh, with what with with your results in Cincinnati. Just do if your you've best. Done, if you've gotten the work in leading up, yeah, to it. yeah, yeah. But even if you haven't, I mean, again, even if the even if Tiafo has another disappointing loss, he's going to know that he's going back to a place where he's performed exceedingly well the last two years, and it's not as if he couldn't still find it. And the, of course, the the other side of that is that you're you're actually fresher. You're, you know, you haven't played as many matches. You're eager. You're fresher. It can still, if you don't let it get in your way, you can move past it. Right. That's always the balance, right? Okay, well, you've lost early a few weeks, so you're well-rested and ready yeah. to roll. Or do you like being on a roll, playing a lot of good matches, having a lot of confidence? You yeah. may not be as well-rested as someone, some others, but you're still feeling really good. It's, it's look, look, there's no perfect solution. If there was every coach and every player would yeah. be telling them to do a certain thing. And there's that, that's sports, right? There's no perfect uh, situation to set yourself up to, to play your best at the, at the biggest events. So we've covered a lot. We, we weren't able to cover everything. So if there's something that we haven't covered again, um, uh, when I post it on social, feel free to, to comment it, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or, or the YouTube channel. Um, we covered a lot, Steve. Did, 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 is there anything else you want to talk about before no, just, uh, we just sign off? Just briefly, it'll be fa- interesting to watch Djokovic because, uh, you know, I think many people thought initially, although the word got out relatively fast, that he was only going to play Cincinnati and not Canada. And I would have thought initially, I, I was a little surprised by that because I thought he would have had a fair amount of time to recover from Wimbledon, but he knows what he's doing and it's it's a decision he wouldn't have made lightly. But it does mean that he, I, I definitely think he would like to get he doesn't feel like he has to win Cincinnati, but I think he'd like to get what Carlos got out of Canada, at least have, say, three matches and be and, and tune himself up for New York. So it will be interesting to watch Novak and see what his form looks like on the hard courts. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't at least like get to the quarters or semis, he's the one player. He's yeah. done this so much. He's so experienced that it's not panic mode for him. He knows no. exactly what he needs to do. Um, with other players, obviously, that would be a different different idea, different ballgame. But um, agreed. Look for Novak to work himself into Cincy. Hopefully he gets some matches under his belt. If he doesn't, I wouldn't I wouldn't put much into it. He's so experienced, no, no, knows exactly I, I, what he needs to do. I'm not do. saying he's going to be brooding if it doesn't happen. I'm saying that's what ideally he's hoping for this week, mm-hmm. you know, to just get himself, get that match play in and have some hardcore matches under his belt and then go to New York ready to fire on all cylinders. A hundred percent. So let's enjoy the tennis this week. And then we'll be back doing this again next Sunday night or or Monday. Um, We'll kind of take in not only Cincy, but we'll try to take in the summer as a whole for a lot of players and see, you know, what, how they're faring going into the open. Then obviously we watch the open and see how the results pan out. Um, I, I love these summer hardcore tournaments, especially once we get into the Washington DCs, the, the, the Toronto, the Montreal's, 
the Cincinnati's, um, not to downplay the other events, but the other events are so close to after Wimbledon. Not everyone plays those, but once we start getting into these um, Masters 1000s leading up to a slam, um, and like we said, because the draws are so, they're condensed, you got such great matchups right out of the shoot. It's going to be the same thing in Cincy that we had these, this past week. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. And I'm looking forward to the Open, which is now just around the corner. Just around the corner. Thanks again, Steve, for your time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, David.